Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In our reading last week, Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana. In the Gospel of John, this is the event that launches Jesus' public ministry. It's the first of seven signs in that Gospel. Miracles that point us in the direction of who Jesus is and what he's up to. In that case, Jesus isn't just saving the wedding hosts from embarrassment by restocking their wine supply. It's a sign. We are to hear echoes of the prophets who talked about the day of the Lord as a wedding feast, talked about the abundance of that day in terms of wine. The miracle shows, it shows us that Jesus is the one the prophets anticipated. Luke does not refer to the wedding at Cana, nor does his account revolve around seven signs. In Luke, it's this passage that launches Jesus' public ministry. He doesn't do something which we recognize as fulfilling the prophets. He just reads the prophet, sits down, and said, that's, that's fulfilled right here, right now. Which is odd in a way. After all, the passage refers to some pretty specific things. Preaching good news to the poor, setting free prisoners, giving sight to the blind. Nothing about reading a passage and just sitting down. We get, we get how the water into wine, how that fulfilled the prophecy. This, this, just reading and sitting, it's not so clear. But actually, today's passage offers an opportunity to reflect in a general way how the Bible works. What does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets? You know, it's sort of a cliche feature of fantasy novels and movies to have some character learn their destiny by fulfilling some ancient prophecy. He heard a gasp as he removed his shirt. He turned around to discover his fellow soldiers on bended knee. What is the meaning of this? asked Amador. You Bear the mark of the chosen one, said Ranguk, his head bowed. You mean my birthmark? Armador asked, trying to look over his shoulder. My uncle said it always looked like a chicken. Not a chicken, Ranguk corrected. Kukadurudu, the poultry god of war. The ancients said this day would come. 
I made that up. But it kind of sounds familiar, right? I mean, it's sort of a cliche. And biblical prophecy can sort of be like that. And in fact, we tend to focus exclusively on the ways prophecy does that. In fact, I recall hearing a preacher who said he asked a statistician to calculate the odds of Jesus fulfilling as many prophecies as he did simply by coincidence. And I don't recall the number that the statistician came up with, but the odds were similar to winning the lottery just before getting hit by a meteor. But biblical prophecy shouldn't be treated that way, like some sort of exact science. This should be obvious by the fact that throughout history, there have been those who've believed the prophets were talking specifically about events in their own time and in their own country. I mean, it's a big industry in this country. Books are published all the time saying, oh, we're fulfilling prophecy. And that's not to say that the prophets have nothing to say about our own day and age. They do. But it's not as though the prophets have just two concerns, predicting the birth and ministry of Jesus in the first century and then the end of the world, which, by the way, people are convinced is sometime real, real soon. To understand prophecy, you really kind of have to understand how the Bible views time working. Um, it's different than the way a lot of ancient cultures viewed time. They viewed time as cyclical. Uh, They viewed, in fact, they viewed change as a threat, as a sign of the disapproval of the gods. You didn't want change. You You didn't want a disruption. You wanted a rainy season, a growing season, a harvest, a dry season, and you want that to start over again. And that flies in the face of our own understanding of time. Uh, Western civilization believes in progress. For us, time moves along a line and uh, toward a future that is better than the past. Well, time in the scriptures is really a little different. It's more of a, a spiral or a helix, right? Like a, like a slinky. It's moving somewhere, but in its forward movement, it follows a pattern, a, a rhythm, so that the present has parallels in the past, right? Uh, so oftentimes, prophets might be declaring a word from the Lord relevant to a particular time in history. But as time passes and the history loops back around, you discover that it, that it is speaking uh, this to this or that time as well. It's In that sense, prophecy is fulfilled again. Now, if we were to take our slinky and stand it on its end and hold it up and then look down on it from above, we would see just a circle, right? We wouldn't see the length of history, the passage of time. We would see a single circle. What Jesus is saying when he says that the the Isaiah passage is fulfilled in their hearing, basically what he's saying is this. I am the circle. My story is the story. 
all the hopes and dreams expressed in the prophets, all signs and wonders, all past and future sin and mess and shame finds its meaning in me. The past looks forward to him to know the future, to understand the future. We must look backward to him. He's the circle. Last Friday, we held a memorial service for Dick Jordan. We used the passage from 1 Corinthians in which Paul addresses the church's anxiety over the dead. They were expecting Christ's return at any moment. Any day now, Jesus would establish his kingdom, and they're waiting and waiting. And while they're waiting, some of them die. And they worry whether those folks have missed out. Paul says, no, no, no. It doesn't work like that. Not a single one of us comes equipped for this kingdom. After all, this kingdom is eternal. We aren't. Our bodies are, to use Paul's word, perishable. And the mystery is this, that our history, our little loop in the timeline, is looped into Christ's history. And because of that, we shall all be changed. The perished and the perishable, we shall all be changed. We die with Christ and we shall be raised with Christ. Not gradually, not over a long stretch of time. No, says Paul, we shall be changed in a flash and a twinkling of an eye. The perishable will be clothed in the imperishable. Our mortality in immortality. Our story is fully looped into Christ's story. And it's not just individual human beings. The whole of creation gets looped in too. Again, here's Paul. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The whole of creation gets looped in. It's the story. It's the creation story is also a death and resurrection story. Now, uh, I think this analogy of time as a helix is pretty cool, but it is limited. For instance, it's not particularly helpful for understanding our own lives. It's helpful in explaining our death, uh, then explaining our life. For that, uh, I want to pull in another analogy. Uh, this one I'm borrow borrowing from the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. Uh, if ever you're looking to deepen your understanding of Scripture and the faith, go with something by N.T. Wright. N.T. is in New Testament, and Wright is in not wrong. He invites us to imagine someone digging through an attic in Stratford, England, and coming across a play written by William Shakespeare. Turns out to be a play no one has ever encountered before. It's deemed authentic by various scholars. The problem is that either it's unfinished or it's simply missing a fourth and final act. The play is performed and people like it, but they want to know how it ends. It needs an ending. How might that happen? Wright suggests that maybe what you do is you recruit some of the best Shakespearean actors. They immerse themselves in the characters and in the story for those three acts, improvise a fourth act, and then evaluate what they had done. 
Did the improvised act reflect the arc of the story to that point? Not just the story, but the characters? Did their words and actions in the final act reflect who they were in the first three? All that discussion would help to prepare them to improvise again. And maybe some of what they did the first time, they do the, the next time. Uh, but maybe they decide, okay, let's take this thing in a different direction. And they keep doing this until they feel like they've ha- they have something worthy of those first three acts. Well, Wright says that we ought to think of the Bible in a similar way, as a play, missing an act. In this case, what's missing is not the final act. That belongs to Christ. When Christ returns and loops everything in, what's incomplete is that the act before the final act. While characters come and go, the play has one director overseeing the whole production, the Holy Spirit, right? Holy Spirit first appears in Genesis, hovering over the waters of creation before the lights come up. But as we get to the pivotal act, the Holy Spirit's role comes to the forefront. Of all the gospel writers, Luke highlights the Spirit's stage direction most specifically. It's in Luke we're told that the Holy Spirit conceives the child in Mary. When Elizabeth responds to Mary's arrival and later when Simeon comes to the temple to greet the infant Jesus, Luke tells us they did so at the Holy Spirit's prompting. In chapter 3, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, at which point the Holy Spirit descends upon them. Chapter 4 opens. Full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus left the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And then you get to our passage this morning, uh, which follows on the heels of those 40 days. And note how it opens. Jesus returned to Galilee full, or Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, this act, this act which fulfills the prophets, that is the central loop of history, concludes when Jesus, is, uh, when Jesus ascends into heaven. And that's how Jesus closes the loop. And sometimes it's misrepresented as though Jesus is just leaving earth for heaven. But no, it, Jesus is going to reign over earth from heaven as victor over uh, death. That's the event that concludes Luke's gospel. It is also the event that opens uh, the sequel to Luke's gospel and begins the next act in the drama of Scripture. And it just so happens that this sequel is called Acts, which is also written by Luke. So after Jesus ascends, Luke or Acts describes how the Holy Spirit descends upon the followers of Jesus. The act described in Acts does not end when the book ends. We are still in that act. It is the Holy Spirit is, that descended uh, at Pentecost is still directing, and the cast of the play has expanded. In fact, it has expanded to include you and me. We have been given a role. And the Apostle Paul would want us to know that our part did not come to us by accident. God had each of us in mind from the very beginning. So you have a part 
problem is, is that part is not scripted. Your lines are not written for you. You can't read ahead to the next scene to know what's coming. Like those Shakespearean actors, we have to improvise. But that does not mean that anything goes, that any choice we make is as valid as any other. No, we have to open ourselves to the directing of the director, the Holy Spirit. And a critical way in which we receive the Spirit's direction is by learning from the previous acts, by internalizing the story to conform ourselves to the image of its central character, to play our part like Jesus would, as if your setting, your circumstances, were a setting and circumstances Jesus is in. Because through the Holy Spirit, that is, in fact, what is happening. So that, so that the arc that is the loop of your life lines up with the arc that is the loop that holds all things together. In the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, amen.